Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. I send a special welcome to those of you visiting with us for the first time. If you have questions about this congregation or about Unitarian Universalism, don't hesitate to ask the friendly people at the visitor table and they will do their best to answer your questions. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. In the spirit of that heritage, I ask us to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Whoever you are, whomever you love, whatever body you are living in, you are welcome here. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. It's nice to have so many of us here today, isn't it? Because we can snuggle together to stay warm. Um, Our call to worship uh, on this cold, chilly morning is a story that will warm our hearts. It's from a Buddhist teacher, Eric Kolvig. He tells us, I was late for a meeting and I was quite stressed. I got off the turnpike and drove up the toll booth feeling quite stressed. And the woman in the toll booth took my money and gave me the most extraordinary smile. It was just amazing. It was like having the Dalai Lama take your money at the toll booth. (laughs) It was an extraordinary experience. Every Sunday and every day during the week when we gather in this building, we have people in the room with beliefs and practices from every major world religion, including no religion, secular humanism, mystic humanism, uh, neo-paganism, staunch atheism, Etc., etc. And so we think about what holds us together. We think about what is at the center. And one of the things that is at the center for this congregation is its mission. As we build a new way, it guides us. These are the plans for building a new way. We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives and do justice. The reading for the meditation part of our service is by Wendell Berry, and it's entitled, A Vision. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of earth or heaven, Then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here, their houses strongly placed upon the valley sides, fields and gardens rich in the windows. The river will run clear as we will never know it, and over it, birdsong like a canopy. Families will be singing in the fields. In their voices, they will hear a music risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground they will not return, whatever the grief at parting. 
memory native to this valley will spread over it like a grove, and memory will grow into legend, legend into song, song into sacrament. The abundance of this place, the songs of its people and its birds will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradisal dream. Its hardship is its possibility. We've reached the time in the service when we enter into the wise silence together, where we can speak to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies. It is in this place where we can become slower in our thinking for a moment so that we can sink our roots down into the heart of compassion to be nourished by it. Breathe with me and let us enter into the silence together, understanding that in this congregation, small noises of life and tiny noises of tiny children are part of the silence. May we be strengthened. May we be healed. May we strengthen others. May we be healers. Amen. So as part of minister training, you do a lot of work in hospitals, and then as part of of ministering, you do a lot of time in hospitals. And so I remember being in a hospital one time and visiting someone. I heard the man in the bed next to my congregant, uh, he said to somebody who was visiting him, he said, I've had a wasted life. I thought, oh my goodness, what a thing to say, what a thing to feel. And what would it, what would it take for me in the hospital bed facing my end not to think something like that? I've had a wasted life, oh. So the Eightfold Path of Buddhism talks about uh, right livelihood. That's the element of the Eightfold Path that we're talking about today in, in our series on the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. And right livelihood is not just um, having a job for pay, which does no harm. That's the classic, um, you have a job that does no harm and that helps the world, ideally. A job within which you can live out your beliefs and values. But making a living, a right livelihood, uh, it's about making the way you live, too. And Buddhism, I love, I love it because the Buddhist teachers don't say, um, if you make your living doing credit default swaps and ruining the global economy, that you are a bad person. And a note from the first service, I thought, boy, that's far-fetched that anyone in the congregation would... (laughs) 
It doesn't say you're a bad person. It just says perhaps if you did something for a living that contributed to the planet and uh, you would, your heart and soul would be happier. And making a living is, a, is something that we all have to think about. Almost all of us, we, we have to think about working for pay because we want to feed our beloveds and we want to be able to put gas in the car and buy uh, diapers and take care of our elderly parents. And we, we have things that take money. And so we have to do something that makes money. And the Buddhist sense of right livelihood encourages encourages us to think about um, living as as spending our life's coin. You spend the coin of your life, and in return, what do you get back? And what do you value? And what do you want to spend your life's coin on? And some of us don't work for money, but we work at home taking care of children or elderly parents, or we volunteer our time and trying to make our community better. We make phone calls to our representatives and our senators. We run for office. We, we lobby. We protest. We do all kinds of things, spending the coin of our life in order to make our community a better place. And if we do it right, we're going to sit in our uh, deathbed or our recliner or wherever we're facing the end. And, um, we, don't get me started on recliners. I had to edit, 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 edit. <laughs> Once we get to the end, then we have a sense that we've spent the coin of our life well. So you have to think, what do I want from my life? What do I want to spend the coin of my life on? Do I want to spend it on enriching my family relationships, on making my friend relationships glorious? Do I want to create art? Do I want to um, make a great garden? Do I want to build a beautiful business that will do good things for the world? Do I want to have um, more freedom or more security? Do I want to have more uh, art and beauty or do I want to have, what do I want in my life? And it behooves us to think intentionally about that. And most of us spend our lives working and, um, and then making a livelihood, a living for ourselves. We work for money and then we work on uh, keeping our bodies healthy. We work on our relationships. We work on playing. Um, many people don't work on playing, but I was raised Presbyterian, so I have to work on playing. <laughs> And it's important that our beliefs and principles guide us as we make our living, as we choose who we're going to live with and who we're going to work with. And um, when my sons were in college, I said, just while you're thinking about how you'd like to make a living, go visit some of those places and see if those are people you want to be around. Because if you don't like anybody else who's doing that thing you want to do, keep in mind that you're going to be around them for a good long time, and you may want to thank twice. <laughs> and I love the story from El- Eric Kolvig about the, toll, the, the woman in the toll booth who, who was just a bodhisattva in her job and who spread heaven by smiling at people and taking their money in a way that said, I see you and you see me and we are in this together and I am 
being love. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves when we're intentionally thinking about how to balance our lives and how to make our living is what is enough? What is enough money? And what they found when they do studies of this is that everybody thinks that if they just could make 20% more, it would be great that they could breathe more easily. So if you make it 34000 a year or 340000 a year, you just think maybe 20% more would make everything copacetic. And so we think, what is enough work? What is enough uh, work hours? What is, what is enough vacation? What is enough family time? What is enough responsibility to take on? Do I take on everything or are some things not my responsibility? How does my life work as I live all my different works? Does that make sense? Now, many workplaces are toxic with disharmony and complaining and just general... I'm not sure what the word for it is, but they suck the life out of you. And how do you be, if you have to stay, in a relationship with the toxic atmosphere in a way that you can make it better? Or can you be a calm and grounded presence? Can you refuse to participate in some workplaces? The whole culture is a complainy culture or a of suffering Olympics culture where, you know, oh gosh, I've got such bad allergies. Ah, you think that's bad. I've got allergies and my finger hurts. I'm like, ah, you think that's bad. And most jobs encourage, in America, most jobs encourage overwork, which is one of the main harms that our job does. Thomas Merton, who is a Trappist monk, wrote this, and he wrote it 50, 60 years ago, so things have not changed. (laughs) The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. More than that, it is cooperation in violence. The frenzy of the activist neutralizes her work for peace. It destroys his inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of her own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. We live in a really uh, hyperactive society, one of them, and overwork can kill us. We don't have a word for it like the Japanese culture does, but it can do the same thing. How do we find balance in our activities? Now, I'm not even going to ask, how can we get our spouse and partner to agree that we have found balance? Because I think I'm doing great. But other people have other opinions. (laughs) But you have to keep addressing the balance. Work, play, health, and rest. 
there's a concept in Christian and Jewish religions of the Sabbath, that one day a week should be taken as not a non-working day. So if you don't have Sunday as your Sabbath, then you have Monday as your Sabbath or a different day as your Sabbath. Ministers and hairdressers, we take Monday usually. <laughs> so it's hard to get your hair done, obviously. And if you're too busy, I mean, our culture encourages us to ask the, answer the question always, how are you doing? You go, ah, oh, busy, busy. And that's a point of pride for us. Isn't that crazy? And people really do, you throw people for a loop. If they go, how are you doing? You go, are you, you're busy, aren't you? You go, not too bad. <laughs> look at you like you just did something bad. <laughs> So you ask, how much family time do I need? How much money do I need? How much of a house do I need? How new of a car do I need? How much time do my children need? Um, How can I live more? How can I live with less? Thoreau said, how much of my life will I give to possess this thing? Right Livelihood asks us to love our world through our work, to be slow-growing trees in a ruined place, to quote our reading from Wendell Berry, asking not too much of earth or heaven. We, many of us, have had a great shock and an alarm at the direction our country is chosen to go. And at the direction the globe is going, really, it seems that there are global robber barons, maybe a hundred of them, who are working together now to strip the non-robber barons of our human rights, of our education, of our um, Incomes, and so that we will be desperate enough to do whatever they need us to do. I'm not an economist. That's just my quick and dirty reading on it. But it is alarming enough so that many of us have felt jolted and frantic. What can I do? Well, I need to do something, and that's good. We've had many different groups formed, and there are websites that say exactly what we should do, and we do it. But... What I want to say about making our living is that perhaps we need to be intentional. Perhaps, I've said this to you before, maybe we need to choose two things instead of 16. Two things that we focus on. These are our tables to wait upon. These are two things that we spend our life's coin on as we resist global authoritarianism. And um, if we think that's what's happening and some of us don't, it's fine. Um, So we bring our beliefs and our intentions to bear on making our community better. And we need to know that we have to rest and we have to play 
And we have to not put our joy on the shelf till everything's right again. We have to have joy in the midst of our struggle. And we can learn this from our black and brown brothers and sisters who do a much better job of understanding that there is a lot of struggle and that if you put your joy off in the midst of struggle, you're not going to have any. And I think that sometimes white liberals are so focused, I'll say, as a positive word. Um, I've had this issue for many years with Mother Jones Magazine that they do not have a humor column. (laughs) And I've volunteered many times to be their humor columnist. (laughs) Maybe just once. (laughs) And why do we feel like we can't laugh until everything is good again? That's, That's a way to die in the middle of your life. And we don't want to do that because we're running a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is a long-term, slow-growing trees in a ruined place, making the ground prepared for the people who will come after us, working to make the river run clean, even though we might not even see that in our own lifetimes. We are taking the long view And as we run a marathon together, we have to understand that we need to take care of ourselves. And we need to take care of each other. May it be so. Will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I am open and I am willing for to be hopeless would seem so strange it dishonors Those who go before us, so lift us up to the light of change. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.com. Dot O-R-G.